evening. It's good to be back with you all. I was here a few months ago. I'm not sure when. It all kind of runs together. Yeah, but Greg and I went to Hungary together originally in 1991. And so that forged a lifelong friendship, even though I don't get to see him as much as I'd like. When we do see each other, our eyes meet, and we just know that, you know, we went through some battles together that forged that friendship. So he wanted me to share, too, kind of what I'm doing now. Um, I moved back. I would move back to Europe uh, right before COVID. And then I went through COVID in Italy. Yeah, that was fun. Um, you guys don't know what a lockdown is, you know. And I always say you have to thank the Italians because um, when it first hit, nobody knew how to treat it. So they had to kind of learn. And in Italy, of course, was the first major outbreak. So they kind of learned on the Italian people. And it was really devastating. So many people died because they were mistreating it so, so much at the beginning. So, um, but I moved back a year ago. It'll be a year in December. And the reason why I came back is I am starting a ministry training program. I do it in Temecula at Reliance Church, Calvary Chapel affiliate. And so I've been involved in Bible college ministry for 25 years. I oversaw the Bible colleges in Austria. And then Greg found a nice building in Hungary. And so... I went there and was involved in planning that, remodeling it. You know, Greg has vision, and then um, somebody has to implement that vision. And so I was, I was chosen one for that. And so I lived there and planted that for thir- three years, and then I moved back, and I served at the Calvary Chapel Bible College as the, the director of the conference center for 14 years. And... Um, and so I always say I finally graduated Bible college. And so now what I do is I, you know, um, I'm, I'm 10 days older than Greg, so I'm getting up there in years. And so what I, what I want to do now is kind of leave the discipleship 101, the Bible college kind of ministry to, to the younger generation. And at this point in my life, I want to take the experience that I do have and impart it to people who have a sense of call on their life to serve in in ministry, men and women, in whatever capacity that is. And so it's a one-year program. I do it in three trimesters over the year. There's an academic portion. One night we do some very practical theology. I teach them everything that I wish I knew before I became a pastor because I had to learn... When Greg invited me to go to Hungary, I was a plumber, and so um, I had to learn the ministry, and I learned so much from Greg during that time, but uh, I was the plumber that went to be a preacher, and, um, and so then I, and, and the second night is we, we study the Bible together. I teach him how to do inductive Bible study as kind of a method that I've learned, and it's a different kind of method even if they are never in a teaching or preaching ministry, if you go through this program, you'll never read the Bible the same. It teaches you how to, how to slow down and to see 
what the author is actually intending you to understand. And then there's a practical element. And so on Sundays, all the students, what they do is they'll rotate into every department in the church. They'll stay there for three to four weeks. Um, I have the department heads, the overseers of each department, spend a, at least an hour or two with them on a personal level, teaching them um, what they do in order to oversee that ministry and also hopefully to impart their heart to them, the heart that they have, why they're doing what they're doing. And so, um, yeah, because over the 25 years of Bible college ministry, I've also had hundreds of interns that this program now has kind of come from. And so I also have sons in the faith really all over the world. And so a lot of what I do now is I still do a lot of mission work. And my, my, my goal is to help these guys like, for instance, I'll be going to Nigeria soon. Um, a guy named Prince, Greg knows him very well, uh, too. He planted a church in the, in the capital city of Abuja. He was an intern at the Bible College when we were in Hungary. And since then, he's, he had planted nine Calvary chapels. And we were just able to, um, a group of people were able to help him to acquire the plot of land next to his land so that because his ministry is growing and they can expand and there's a lot of vision. And one of the things that he wants to do is to put a training center, ministry training center there. And so I want to help him with that, with the curriculum and anything we can help him with. So I go and I help him, you know, we go over there once a year and help facilitate a conference for all the people that he's ministering to, to help equip them and to train them. Because I still feel like, you know, uh, we, we've mentored Pastor Prince, you know, but now he's mentoring all these guys, so I still have the opportunity even to maybe touch the next generation as well. And um, that's, that's, um, that's good at my age. I, I want to see young, hungry men and women that want to serve the Lord and continue, continue this ministry that was birthed by the Holy Spirit. And so that's it. If you have a Bible, turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. We're going to be talking about realizing our, sa our salvation tonight. And um, I'll explain that as we go. But our free will, along with God's sovereignty, work together practically to realize this great salvation that we have in our day-to-day -day lives. That's what I really want to talk about tonight. So we're going to pick up the story in verse 12. Let's read through verse 18 together. Paul writes, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a, cro a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world holding fast to the word of life, 
so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. So let's pray together. So Father, we do pray that you would um, open our hearts to your word tonight. Lord. I pray that your Holy Spirit would anoint your word and that it would go forth in, the, in power and in the spirit, Lord. We need to be touched in places maybe that we don't even know. And we need to be encouraged or exhorted, Lord. You know every heart. So I pray that your spirit will work through your word to accomplish what you desire tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. So in order to really grasp this, I got to give some context to this. And so bear with me and, and follow along. And so firstly, the Apostle Paul is writing to this church that he planted some 10 years before. You can read that in Acts chapter 16 when he made it into the town of Philippi. It was a predominantly a Gentile church. There were not very many Jews in that city. It was a Roman colony. And so Paul is writing this letter to the Philippians from Rome. He's, a, he's a, a, under house arrest. He spent two years under house arrest awaiting his trial before Caesar Nero at the time. He spent two years in prison in Caesarea prior to that, so... He was confined for about four years at this time. One of the things that comes out as you read this letter to the Philippians is that the apostle had a real sincere affection for these saints in Philippi. He had a natural affection, but he also had a supernatural love, the agape love for them as, as God was working through him. And he considers the Philippian church as part of his missionary team, if you will. Because right from the beginning, you can read about it in chapter 4 of Philippians, the Philippian church was in supporting the Apostle Paul financially and prayerfully right from the beginning. So they have been consistently supporting his missionary endeavors for 10 years. So he looked at them as in being in partnership or in fellowship in the gospel with him. So he had this real uh, affection for them. And so while Paul was in, in, in his imprisonment in Rome, a man by the name of Epaphroditus, you can read about him in chapter 2, later on in chapter 2, is sent by the church in Philippi to take aid to him. Um, they finally figured out where he was. They didn't have a cell phone back in those days. And so Paul's being in prison in Caesarea and in Rome. They knew where he was. So they sent this man, Epaphroditus, with the support that was needed. And he made his way there. And so it seems that while he was there, that Ep Epaphroditus brought Paul some news concerning the church. And there were problems in the church in Philippi that are uh, addressed by the Apostle Paul in this letter. And it comes out in chapter 4, verse 2. 
he says, I entreat Uodia and I entreat Sinteke to agree in the Lord. So there's these two ladies that were at odds. They were in disagreement. And probably there was other people that were on Uodia's side and Sintike's side. And so there was some schism. There was kind of a division in, in that church. And so he writes this letter to kind of deal with it. This passage that we're going to look at tonight can only really be understood by looking up uh, a little bit further in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Paul writes, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, and being in full accord and of one mind. So he's addressing this schism that was in the church in Philippi. And he's encouraging them that you need to be, you need to have unity. Obviously, the church wasn't experiencing the unity that God desires for his body. And so it was damaging their fellowship with God. And obviously, when our fellowship with God is damaged, our fellowship with each other is damaged as well. In, in verses 5 through 11, the Apostle Paul goes into the kind of detail of the example of Christ's humility, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider it something to be grasped. He was willing to let that go, and he became a human being. We're coming up to Christmas, the incarnation, where God took on a human nature as well in the second person of the Godhead, the Son of God. He denied his rights and his privileges as God and came to the earth to dwell among us and to accomplish his mission. And that mission was to reconcile humanity back to God. And so in Christ's example, the apostle shows them the principle of humility. And that would restore the Christian unity and the fellowship with God and the fellowship with our fellow believers. So that's kind of where we get into this. And so we're going to look at kind of three things quickly tonight. The first one is how to work out our salvation. And the second one is the power to work out our salvation. And the third one is the current blessings that we can partake of, of our, of our great salvation. So the first thing Paul does is he, he does, he wants them to do these things as if he were present, right? I'm not going to, I might not be able to show up for a while, but I want you to do these things as if I was there, right? Um, if you ever have children, it's amazing how um, they are on their best behavior sometimes when the parents are there. But when the parents are gone, you know, that sometimes that behavior can change really quickly. One of the things was, uh, wait till your father gets home. You ever heard that one? And when I was a kid, I remember that one. I, my mom said, wait till your father gets home. We kind of shaped up real quick because we knew what that meant. The, um, back in our day, the belt was going to come out, you know. 
Um, it doesn't always work that way, sometimes even in the present. I remember I have a, uh, three children and one grandchildren. My son's now 28, but I remember when he was younger, he had his, um, we, you know, was, uh, there were some cookies on the table and we were about to eat dinner. And he went over to the table to grab one of the cookies. And I said, you gotta wait till after dinner, Joshua. You can't have it right now. And I remember him looking at me. He hadn't grabbed one yet. He was looking directly at me, and I said, don't do it, as he reached out and grabbed the cookie, you know? Um, the, we all have a sinful nature. But when, we, when, we're, when the parents are present, it kind of changes maybe our behavior, and that's what Paul is saying. You need to do these things even though I'm not going to be there. When I'm there, obviously, you act a certain way, but act that way even when I'm gone. And then he goes on and he says, this, um, this passage that we're going to look at, I think we need to kind of have special consideration for it because um, it can draw a person into a work-based relationship with God because of the idea of work out your salvation, right? And so the believer is in a relationship with God only by his grace. And I know that you have been well taught here. And um, grace is one of Pastor Greg's favorite themes. And so I learned a lot from that, from him on that one. Grace is unmerited favor, right? A person can only be saved by faith in God and his redemptive plan. By putting your trust in God and the work that Jesus did on the cross. Paul makes that clear, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. Our salvation is a gift of God. We understand that we're saved by grace alone through faith. So what is the Apostle Paul's meaning that you have to work out your salvation? And so what I want to try to do is explain to you the biblical concept of salvation so that maybe we can better understand what the apostle is saying. You see, biblically speaking, salvation comes in three phases. Past, present, and future. Let me show you. Of course, we don't need to go into too much detail on the past. When we come to Christ, we put our faith in him, and we are saved. And the proof that we are saved is that we are born again. And Paul is writing to born-again Christians, but he's telling them to work out their salvation. The, the apostle Peter, in um, 1 Peter 1.9, he, he insinuates that the believers are presently receiving their salvation. He says, believers are obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So we're saved in the past, and we're being saved presently. But he also goes on, and he talks about a future salvation in chapter 1, verse 5. He says, by God's power, we are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. 
And Paul talks about that himself, and this coincides with the redemption of the body when, when we're glorified. So this present salvation is, is talking about this time that we live in right now, uh, the sanctification process. And then in the future, glorification, when our salvation will be finalized and we will receive our glorified body. So therefore, when Paul writes to the Philippians to work out their salvation, he's referring to our current sanctification process. I look out and I can see that many of you have already been totally sanctified, right? No, we're all in that process. We're all in that process of growing and hopefully growing into the image, image of Jesus. So the sanctification process is what every believer is currently engaged in and will be engaged in until that day of glorification. When we meet Jesus, the redemption of our bodies, we shed this body of sin, we receive our new body that's, um, doesn't, that's not polluted or corrupted with sin, and um, we look forward to that day. So therefore, the Apostle Paul encourages these Philippians that they needed to incorporate the principles of humility and the example of Christ's humility or having the mind of Christ, as he says, into their current situations in life. Obviously, there was a specific situation with Euodia and Syntyche. They needed to, to take these things and incorporate that, those things into that situation. But these principles that we're going to look at, they can be incorporated into our situations, especially when we're talking about situations of relationship. Remember that Paul began by you know, encouraging them to have one spirit, one mind, to have this Christian unity. So the apostle is dealing with their problem specifically, but the encouragement for us is to employ these principles in our current difficulties or our current situations. Have you ever had some challenges in your relationships? Have anybody been married for more than a day? You've experienced that. <laughs> Have you ever had any challenges in your relationships with your fellow believers? Um, uh, I, could, I could tell you a story. Maybe I will. You know, um, we, had, uh, we have a, a Chinese ministry in our church and um, we, I, I, I'm overseeing the missions department and a lot of stuff, and I also oversee the Chinese ministry. We also have a deaf ministry. I oversee that as well. Um, so I was up on, on a Wednesday night, and I was sh kind of sharing, you know, with some of the leaders from those different groups, you know, what God was doing. And so it's very exciting. I mean, there's... Um, probably around 60 Chinese brand new believers that are coming to the Lord. 
We have a Chinese lady who does simultaneous translations with headsets in her church. And um, so they're kind of, come, we're all kind of coming together, language barrier and that kind of thing. But I love cross-cultural ministry. So for me, it's a blessing. But um, there were some people in the church that didn't like it. I didn't understand it. And there was this kind of grumbling that was taking place and, and maybe some they were gathering some people together with them and complaining and stuff like that. I think that that's kind of what's happening also in the, in the Philippian church and we'll get into that in more detail in a minute. So we all have these in life, you know, in the workplace. That's a real challenge when you're dealing with unbelievers and, and so forth. So we can take these and, and use them. So he says, work out your own salvation. Work out your salvation, not work for your salvation. As I already stated, the Philippians are already saved, past tense. They've been born again. They're probably baptized in the Holy Spirit, but they needed to continue to work out this salvation in their present day situations. And the Greek word translates, translated work out, it kind of has the idea of working to the ultimate conclusion as you would work on a mathematical problem and the goal is to work it out to the ultimate conclusion. So we're in a lifelong mathematical problem, if you will. We're always going to be having to be working out this mathematical or this, this salvation that we possess until that final day. Sometimes we think, you know, if I can just get right here, everything's going to be, it's not going to be okay if you get right there. There's still going to be challenges. This life is full of challenges, and we got to get that through our heads that we need to constantly be working out our salvation in our day-to-day -day lives. There's specific things that Paul gives us that we can do in the context of this passage. And the first thing is, if you look up in verse 4, this is an important one. Let each of you look out not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. You mean it's not all about me? See, in my mind, I'm the most important thing in, there is, right? I always think about what's good for me. I always think about me. I always think about what do I want, what do I want to eat. But, but we need to look out for the interests of others. So many problems arise in our relationships because we are only concerned what we can get out of it for ourselves. Our individualistic culture that we live in, Western culture, it came from a biblical concept that every man is made in the image of God, therefore every individual is important. But when you take God out of the picture, that individualistic idea becomes twisted. And it's about me. And we live in a culture where um, we can kind of isolate ourselves really easily, don't we? I had a neighbor before I moved back to Europe, and I only saw him driving into his garage. He'd come home from work, 
The garage door would go would open. He would drive in. The garage door would close. And the next morning, the garage door would open. He'd drive out. And the only time I ever saw him was probably, I lived there for eight years, probably a handful of times when we happened to take out the trash at the same time. You know. So we're very isolated, very individualistic, apart from God. We have a community where we're, when we're born again, our growth, our vitality, if you will, as believers comes from God and from God's people. We stir each other up, the writer to the Hebrews says, to love and to good works. And so the community is very important for the believer to be able to develop properly. Obviously, this individualistic culture has made its way into the church. We got to be aware of that. We got we to kind of search our own hearts, look at our lives and see where we can maybe, um, where we need to have a change of mind, if you will. Not only that, but we still have a sinful nature. I reckon it dead but it seems to always come back to life, right? Anybody else have a problem with your sinful nature? We want to do certain things and we don't do them, all of that. We live in a fallen world. I mean, here it is, a marriage. One fallen human being married to another fallen human being living in a fallen world. Um, now just go have some bliss together. That's gonna take some. That's gonna take some effort to make it work out. And so, um, we all have a tendency because of our sinful nature only to think about what concerns us, and we have to get to that place where we're looking out of ourselves and we're looking at our spouse, our friends, and we need to start looking, what are they concerned about? I'm not just going to look out for myself, my own interests. I need to start looking out for other people. That's where the Christian life is most vibrant. When you get out of yourself, start engaging in real relationship, fellowship, edifying somebody else, you'll be brought back to life to a large degree. And then he says in verse 14 of our text, he says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. The implication is that the people at the church of Philippi complained about things, but they weren't explicitly kind of complaining or publicly. It was more a murmur. The strife between Euodia and Syntyche is, is, is kind of implied that they may have been some of the culprits of this problem. And so the Greek word translates, translated grumbling is the, um, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, right? The Septuagint. 
That word is used to describe the children of Israel as they murmured in the desert, in the wilderness. And so that kind of gives you an idea. And one Greek scholar said it refers to not loud outspoken dissatisfaction, but to that undertone murmuring, which uh, one sometimes hear in the lobbies of our present day churches where certain cliques are having it out, so to speak, among themselves. So it's that, it's that underlying grumbling like the people were doing about the Chinese outreach. They never came out and, and said that to all, any of, our, uh, of the pastors of the church, but there was this underlying murmuring that was taking place. And Paul said, don't do that. Don't do that. And then the other word is questioning, or some translations have it disputing. And it has the idea of questioning in our hearts, but questioning with doubt. And it carries the idea of discussion or debate with the underthought of suspicion. Right? So not just questioning to find the answers, but questioning with doubt. So the Apostle Paul encouraged the Philippians don't get engaged with those who are murmuring. Don't take part in that. Cut it off. If people are trying to suck you into that, don't do it. It's not going to help you. It's going to harm you. And it's going to harm the church. It's, and, um, so don't get dragged into things that produce strife and division but avoid it and work towards unity work out your salvation do these things and it will help promote unity and then the final thing he tells us in verse 16 holding fast to the word of life the final thing that we can do the thing at least in this text is hold on to God's word Immerse yourself in God's word. I'm preaching to the choir because you all brave the storm out there. Uh, you know, it was raining pretty hard on my way up from Temecula on the freeway. It took uh, my, my GPS took me all the way around, but I got here. Um, but the word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and the spirit and the joints and the marrow. And it's a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of your heart. So the word of God is the power that you have that you can tap into. The word of God is a, uh, will help clarify the motives of your heart. Am I acting selfishly? Is my sinful nature getting the best of me in this relationship? Am I only concerned about myself? Or am I really concerned about somebody else? Sometimes we can kind of talk ourselves into, well, I'm doing it for them. But no, you're not. You're doing it for yourself. But the word of God will help clarify your motives if you're immersed in it. James says the word of God is like a mirror. It, it will reflect if you let it, it will reflect what's in your heart. It will show you where you're in error. 
It will show you where you are on the correct course. So those things can, are the things that we can employ that will help us work out our salvation the, the, that we're all engaged in at the moment. Whatever problems, whatever um, relationship strife we may be encountering, we can employ these in faith. And I've, I've, I've lived a long time with the Lord. I got saved 25, so about five years now. Just joking. And, and I've tried things over these 35 years, 40 years. I've tried things on my own. And then it didn't work. I've employed God's word. And lo and behold, it works. It's been tested and proven to be true. When you employ these principles, they actually work. That's why the Bible is still the best-selling book. It's been like that for years, you know. Uh, you know how many self-help books there are? Yeah, Google them. Self-help and see how many come up. You know why there's so many? Because the last one didn't work. So they got to write another one. You can't help yourself. You know, you've, but God can help you. And God's truth can help you. So submerge yourself in that truth. So this is how we can work out our salvation. But also Paul talks about the power that is available to us to work out that salvation. He says, for God works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So this is an amazing concept that Paul is sharing with the Philippians. He uses a different word for work that he did up in, the, in, the, in verse 12 where he says, work out your own salvation. It's a Greek word, energeo. It's the word where we get our word energy from. So what Paul is saying is that when you work out your salvation, when you're, you know, employing these principles or attempting to employ these principles in your life, then God is going to be giving you the, or energizing you, if you will, to be able to do it. Um, it involves human free will. You don't have to. You can sit on your butt if you want to. You can, you can be hearers of the word and not doers if you want to. That's your choice. Um, you can go through a little bit more miser misery until you realize I can't, I better uh, change a little bit. I better some, start doing something different in life. Sometimes God will just let you, let you lead yourself into destruction. There's a way that seems right to man, but the end is destruction. So if you want to go your way, he'll let you. I always say God will not violate you, your free will, but God has ways of making you willing. So, but it also has the idea of God's sovereignty in here. 
as well, doesn't he? God is a sovereign God. We put in the effort, but it, it is God's power that we are going to be trusting in to give us the ability to act accordingly. You get that? We're going to put in the effort. We're going to roll up our sleeves. We're going to work out that mathematical problem that will never be complete until glorification. But as we roll up our sleeves to do these things, we're going to be trusting that God is going to give us the ability and the power to do them because we realize we can't do them. That's the point of the gospel. You can't do it. I'm going to send my son, Jesus, to do it for you. You're saved by grace because no matter how hard you try to work, you would never be able to do it. So God works in us both to will and to do some translations or it's the same Greek word, energeo, or to act some translations. To will, to will, to do, to will, to act. And this is where it gets tricky for me because we have a will, don't we? And God has a will. And sometimes those wills differ from each other. Um, I had three kids, and I would tell them, I know that you have a strong will, but I have a stronger one, right? And then I think God says, Rod, I think you have a strong will, but I have a stronger one. So how does it that God takes us and takes our strong will and aligns it with his will. We have to be willing, number one, but um, what motivates us to allow God to take our will and merge it or align it with his will? Well, Paul says one thing is fear and trembling. Work out your own salvation in fear and trembling. We are motivated to work out our salvation because of who God is. I mean, he's almighty creator. And there should be a healthy fear of God, a healthy respect for God. I mean, we were once under the wrath of God. That's a terrible thing. That's a horrific thing. Once deserving of eternal, eternal punishment, eternal suffering. If you're not afraid of that, you better ask God to wake you up. <laughs> it's a real. It's real. So fear is a good motivator, but I don't think it's the best motivator. I think there's, other, there's another motivation. Solomon was the wisest king that ever lived besides Jesus, and this is what he wrote in Proverbs 8.13. The fear of the Lord is hatred and evil. But listen to what he goes on to say. But pride and arrogance are the way of evil, 
and perverted speech I hate. Pride and arrogance seems to be the evil that had crept in to the, or the Philippian church. Paul had to remind them, you need to humble yourself. Here's the example of Christ who had all the privileges in heaven. But he said, I don't need, I'm not going to hold on to that. I'm not going to grasp onto that. I'm willing to let that go. I'm willing to take and become humble. The humiliation of becoming a human being. The humiliation of dying on the cross. He humbled himself took the form of a servant. You know, there's a lot of implications in that, but he had the privileges of being in heaven, angels worshiping him, and now he comes and he says, I'm a servant, I come to serve. And the word is slave, he came to be a slave. I didn't come to be served, I came to serve. But because he says it's in the very nature, or very form, God, this is, Part of who God is. He, he, he is a servant. He saw the need of humanity. And he was moved because of his love, because of his grace. And he served us. He served us through the second person of the Godhead, Jesus. But there's something... I think that is built in to that healthy fear and that awesome respect we have for God. And it's the love of God. It's the love of God. The Apostle Paul wrote, and listen, pay attention to these words. For the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake he died and was raised. Right? The gospel. The gospel. Do you know that Jesus died for your sins? Do you know that Jesus went to the cross? Prior to going to the cross, he was in the Garden of Gethsemane praying three times that this cup would pass from him. He was in anguish of soul with the thought of going to the cross. Not because, you know, the nails were going to hurt his hands. Not because the, the beatings and all of that that was probably a part of it in his humanity. He probably didn't think that would be very pleasant. But the thing he dreaded the most, as he sweat, as it were, great drops of blood, intense prayer, is he knew that on that cross, the sin of the world was going to be poured upon him. Perfect humanity. Sinless man, perfect fellowship with the Father. And then all of a sudden, your sin, my sin, everybody's sin, that deserved that death that he died, 
was poured upon him. And then he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because that sin was now upon him, he, for the first time he experienced as a human being separation of fellowship from, from God. And he did that for you. How can that not move your heart? How can that not penetrate the hardness that maybe um, some of the experiences that we have had in this world tend to harden us, embitter us? Look at the cross. Look at Jesus. Look at what he's done. See the love. You ever doubt God's love? Look at the cross. It says, I love you. I love you to this extent. And that is the thing that will penetrate us. And it will give us the desire to conform our will to his will. We fear healthy respect for him. But we also, because he first loved us, we love him and we want to please him as a result. That's, that's the gospel. The things that I shared to employ into your salvation presently, guess what? You can't do it. You can't do it. But God's power can energize you to do it. And God's love and the fear of God in your heart can give you the willingness to allow that process to take place in your life. And when you do, there's going to be blessings that come from it. And he says, he gives you a couple of those things. He says that you're going to be blameless and innocent in a crooked and perverse generation. You're not going to be perfect. But you're going to be different. And people are going to see the difference. Jesus said that the world will know you're my disciples by your love one for another. Not because you're perfect. But there's going to be something different about you. There's going to be a different dynamic in your relationships. And they're going to look at that. And they're not going to be able to understand it. They're going to, be, they're going to know that you're experiencing something that they've never experienced before. But you got to do it. And then he says that we're going to shine as lights in a dark world. Paul writes to the Colossians. It's a great verse. It's one of the first verses I memorize as a new believer. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of the Son of His love, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We were once in darkness, Paul says. But now we're light of the Lord, in the Lord. And so walk as children of the light. When you apply these 
principle, you employ these into your salvation. When you work out your salvation, God will work in you to be able to accomplish it. And then you're going to be that person that's not crooked and perverse. Not going to be perfect. Then you're going to be that person who is a shining light for the Lord. You're going to, your relationships will change. Your relationships will change. And so if you're having especially trouble in your relationships, you start. You know, sometimes we're in a Bible study. Man, I wish, I wish that person was here to hear this. You ever done that? That guy need my, you know, my wife probably needed to hear that, you know. Or that guy really needed to be here to hear. That. No, man, you're here, and they're not. So you must need to hear it. And you maybe need to be the initiator. Somebody's got to start. May it be you. May it be me. And may it, the fire spread as a result. Amen? So Lord, we're thankful for Jesus. We're thankful for the work that he did in saving us, for doing what we couldn't do and living a perfect life and being that example. And Lord, we pray that as we think about him, think about his work, that um, it would kind of penetrate our hearts, Lord, that we would sense the grace, the love in a fresh new way that would kind of have a transforming effect in our lives, Lord. That we can um, choose to align our wills with your will. And we know as we do that, as we make our choice, that it's going to be you that is going to be doing it, doing the, um, giving us the power to be able to do that. When it's all said and done, you're going to be the one that gets the glory because you've done something for us that we could have never done for ourselves. Lord, we want, to, we want to be a light in this world. And so we pray that by your grace, Lord, you'd be able to help us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you all. I'll stick around if you have any questions or want to shake a clammy hand. Come on up.